The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hello, lovely listeners, friends, vegans, pregans, everybody out there in radio and podcast world. We are starting our fourth year today. If you were with us last week, you know we celebrated our third birthday of Main Street Vegan Radio when the lovely people at Unity Online Radio invited me to start this show back in 2012 The woman who was then directing the network said, I know it'll be a great show. My only concern is, can you find enough people to be your guests week after week? And I said, well, absolutely. Not really positive that I would, but I have the opposite problem. There are so many amazing people. And this whole path, this whole vegan, plant-based, animal rights world is so richly textured and so varied. There's just so much to talk about. So today, after our first break, we're going to be speaking with Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg, authors of the Vegetarian Flavor Bible. They are James Beard Award winners. They come from the world of oh cuisine. And now they're vegan. Fascinating, isn't it? This whole culinary world is relatively new in the vegan movement, but it's a very important and very big these days. And right now, I want to introduce you to a young woman whom I have a feeling you're going to be seeing on every television talk show, on every news channel, because the book that she has written, I think, is moving me more than any book since um, Diet for a New America back in the 1990s. 
you will be amazed and fascinated by what Sonia Faruqi has to say. Sonia attended Dartmouth College and then worked as an investment banker on Wall Street. Later, a volunteer vacation at a dairy farm turned into the beginning of a global expedition into the animal agriculture industry with the aim of improving the lives of farmed animals. Welcome, Sonia. Thank you, Victoria. It's so exciting to be here. Well, it's absolutely wonderful to be here. The book is Project Animal Farm, An Accidental Journey into the Secret World of Farming and the Truth About Our Food. Now, the official pub date for her book is July 15th, but you can do a pre-order. And as you know, pre-orders are really, really important to get buzz going. Although I must say, Sonia, you are pretty well buzzed already with uh, endorsements from <laughs> Peter you. Singer, Francis Morlapay, John Robbins. So what happened? What was a nice girl in a nice office doing hanging out at a dairy farm and changing her life? That's the question, isn't it? Um, so I was working on Wall Street, and a lot of investment bankers don't like their jobs, but I loved my job. I loved numbers. I loved the fast-paced lifestyle and all of that. Um, and then I was naive at the time. I thought organic farms are wonderful and animals are treated so well, and why don't I go and take a vacation by volunteering at an organic dairy farm. And I showed up and found that things were not at all as I'd expected. The farmers weren't as I'd expected. The animals were not living as I'd expected either. And that stay, that visit really changed my worldview. It um, made me interested to see what I could do about all of this. So your writing style is amazing. That's the other thing that I want our readers to understand today, that this is not just some awful expose about the horrors of factory farming, although certainly those are here. But you write as, as a novelist. These are incredible turns of phrase, wonderful, wonderful words. So just give us a little story of what happened when you showed up at this farm? So um, I arrived at night. It was about uh, 9 p.m., and we were all sitting down for dinner. And it was a middle-aged couple that had moved um, to Canada from the Netherlands um, a long time ago and had been living here for 30 years. And that's... um, a time when they were sort of angry at each other. The wife, Irene Miller, hated the farm. She wanted to leave, and they were on the verge of divorce almost. And it was um, sort of I was thrust into this setting. I had committed to volunteering for two weeks, um, even though it was obvious from the first dinner itself that they didn't like each other, they didn't care for their farm, they didn't care for their animals, they um, were just not personally in it. Um, so I I loved meeting all these different people in Project Animal Farm. That was probably among the best parts of the book for me to 
meet all these people whom I would otherwise have no interaction with and to sort of get to know them. Most of them I really ended up liking very much, and some of them didn't seem to like me very much, um, but it was very much uh, about personalities. It was about um, conversations, observations, and it's um, the book Project Animal Farm is a story of my journey. Well, it, it really is, and it's a wonderful story. That was why I wanted to start there. I do want to ask you something factual from your very first farm visit. I thought I knew a lot about farming methods, but you introduced me to something that I have never heard of before, and that is the manure gutter. Can you just tell us what that is? Right. So um, at small dairy farms in the United States and Canada, most dairy cows are chained to stalls for most or all of the year. And it's um, a situation where they're in a stall that's very narrow and there's a manure gutter behind them. It's sort of a ditch into which their manure falls and then the next day it's turned on and the manure sort of is moved aside. Um, but because of the structures of the stall, And because farmers don't want extra cleaning, there's also an electric rod above the cows such that if they're not in the perfect position when they defecate, they're getting an electric shock. Um, So it's a very harsh sort of housing system where the cows are not only not moving at all, but even their position of um, defecation has to be just right, and there's really no movement permitted in such a system. And this was something I had never heard of before, and this, of course, was on an organic farm. So that doesn't necessarily, as, as you found out, mean sweetness and light for the animals. So tell mm-hmm. me from the global perspective, you went many, many places so where did you go, and what are the trends that you noticed? I went to Canada, the United States, Mexico, Belize, Indonesia, and Malaysia. These were the primary places. At each place, I learned something different. Uh, one of the trends that is common that I saw in Indonesia and Belize is that farms today are really transitioning to factory farms. Um, So countries assume that the U.S. factory farm model is something they should be imitating, that it's a part of development, even though, of course, it has sharp consequences along with it. Um, So this mindset that this is automatically a good thing and something we should imitate is unfortunately common and that I hope stops being as prevalent with um, the release of Project Animal Farm. There are other issues as well. There's a lot of disease, um, bird flu outbreaks in Asia. Everybody's very scared of bird flu outbreaks, um, and for good reason. Of course, if animals are not treated well, the consequence is bird flu. Um, so there's a lot I learned in different places about different um, mindsets about different practices, some good, others bad, many in transition. Mm. 
Well, something else that I learned reading your book about artificial insemination, and, and listeners, you, you've got to read this book. She describes her experience in watching the artificial insemination process, and she's a really good writer, like I said. But you noted something that I had not really thought about. Because the artificial insemination comes from so few bulls that we're mm-hmm. really creating all these cattle without any genetic diversity. What does this mean? What does this do? Yes, so um, artificial insemination, I saw it at this organic dairy farm where um, this inseminator comes in and starts inseminating a cow. Um, And it's such a strange uh, process, but um, the genetic aspects of it are definitely something that should be considered a lot more than they are. Um, So there are bulls that are considered top bulls by insemination companies based on just the factor of milk production. Um, They seem to have genes that would hint at higher milk production in dairy cows. But the same bull can be the father through an artificial insemination of thousands upon thousands of cows. Um, So there are a lot of cows today are genetically related. There's very little genetic diversity in the dairy industry and increasingly throughout animal agriculture. Um, And when we think about it, it's, um, I mean, in nature, you need genetic diversity for the long-term survival of species, and that's utterly absent in agriculture today. Fascinating. So what are some of the solutions that you propose in Project Animal Farm? I divide solutions into two camps, producers and consumers, and I think the consumer part is more relevant to us today because that's, I'm assuming there are no factory farmers on this show. Um, So the consumer part relates to our diet, our um, values, and our purchasing decisions. So a plant-based lifestyle is a very direct and important thing that people can do. And um, it's something I've been vegetarian for about 10 years now. And that's um, a situation, I mean, our diet is our most direct relationship to all of this. Um, And it's the part we have the most direct control over. So thinking about what we eat and thinking about what that actually means for animals and the planet is incredibly important. It is indeed. So tell us about you, Sonia. Well, first about you. Happy anniversary. I saw on Facebook that you just celebrated your first anniversary. Congratulations (laughs) and many, many wonderful decades ahead. But tell us how this project, how all this travel and going into these places that had to be intimidating and and frightening and, and different, how did this experience change you? It made me a stronger person, a more courageous person, if I may say so. Um, So I was often traveling to all kinds of rural areas alone. I was often hitchhiking, and um, often people, especially internationally, were so surprised. They were saying, you're a young 
woman traveling alone, why are you doing this? This is so strange. Um, there's a funny part in Chapter 10 in Malaysia where the CEO of a huge company decides to talk to me only because of that factor, that I'm alone, and he just finds that so crazy. Um, so I would say I definitely became more open-minded, more informed, and more aware and more aware and interested in what's happening around me in the world. Um, so it was a very positive experience and change for me, my book, Project Animal Farm. And I think readers, when they accompany me on this journey, they'll feel a similar sort of um, positive change. Well, I'm sure that that's true because I'm feeling it already and I'm not finished with the book, but right. I'm just so happy to be reading it, even though obviously the experiences, the images are not pleasant. But the fact that mm -hmm. your writing is so wonderful keeps me going. Because, you know, sometimes with these things, I think, okay, mm -hmm. wait a minute. I know this stuff. I've been to some of these places. I'm a vegan. I don't have to read any more about it. But I've learned things in your book already, and you do make it such a fascinating read that anybody out there who's saying, uh-oh, I don't want to know, I don't want to know, yes, you do. Yes, you do. And if anybody can package this information, much of which is horrid, in, in images mm -hmm. and words that make you keep on reading, Sonia Faruqi has done that. The book is Project Animal Farm, An Accidental Journey into the Secret World of Farming and the Truth About Our Food. You can pre-order on Amazon. You can also go to Sonia's website. That's S-O-N-I-A-F-A-R-U-Q-I dot com. You can also find her on Twitter at Sonia underscore Faruqi. And on Facebook, it's just turned around. It's Faruqi Sonia. All the best with the book launching July 15th. Hopefully we will talk again. And bless you for taking this journey that most of us wouldn't have had the nerve to do. And it's a grace for all of us that you did it. Thank you, Victoria, and thank you to listeners as well. It's been a pleasure to be on this show. All the best. And everybody else, stay with us. We're going to be back with some really good and maybe really fancy food. Stay with us. Wouldn't you like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives. It's Kitchen Table Karma. Make kind food choices. Watch more good come into your own experience. Feed your body with bright, fresh, colorful foods from nature and develop the glow of radiant health. Learn how to easily reap these benefits in your life with Victoria Moran's latest book, The Good Karma Diet. Eat gently, feel amazing, age in slow motion. Including stories from real people whose dietary change graced their lives in remarkable ways. Plus, 40 delectable superfood recipes from culinary alchemist Doris Finn. Available wherever books are sold, as a print edition, an ebook, or a deluxe Kindle or Nook book with 30 minutes of audiovisual extras. The Good Karma Diet. Share the love and love your life.
like life, grief is a journey, not a destination. Whether it is loss of life, relationship, security, or simply the process of change, have you given yourself permission to begin your journey of grief? Have you yielded to the gift of grace? Join Reverend Chaz Wesley every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central on a virtual navigation from grief to grace and explore new horizons of empowerment, significance, and support only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. You're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. We are now going to be talking with some very big people in the world of food. Now, I don't know much about the world of food. I think because I became vegan such a long time ago, I never really had a chance to explore what was then a very meat-centered world. And when I became vegan, there wasn't really a culinary aspect of it. I believe there were two vegan cookbooks, maybe half a dozen vegetarian cookbooks available in the United States that were in print. I think there were some out-of-print ones from the 1920s or whatever floating around. But now, in addition to the animal ethics part of being vegan, the health part of being vegan, the environmental part of being vegan, and the world hunger and the spiritual parts of being vegan, there is this entire culinary world opening up. Now, that I knew about, and I thought, it was just a lot of vegan chefs and vegan cookbook authors creating this little culinary niche. But then along come Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg. If you are in the world of food or you know something of that world, then you know these James Beard Award-winning authors of The Flavor Bible and that more recently they have come up with another encyclopedic tome of absolute foodie wonder, and that is the Vegetarian Flavor Bible. They are the best-selling authors who have sold the better part of a million copies of their books. They have two James Beard Awards, and those are the Oscars of the food world. Their best-selling books include Becoming a Chef, Culinary Artistry, What to Drink with What You Eat, and that won the IACP Cookbook of the Year Award. And then the Flavor Bible, named one of the 100 best cookbooks of the past 25 years by Cooking Light, and one of the 10 best cookbooks of the past century by Forbes. And that is the magazine, Not My Dog. Welcome, Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg. <laughs> I'm so glad here. you clarified to your <laughs> <laughs> listeners that, that it was the magazine and not the dog. I'm sure they'd be awfully confused. Most, most chewed-on book in the house. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, he, he would probably, yeah. 
<laughs> like it quite a bit. He does love to nibble on the food of the humans. So welcome, welcome to the show. I do want to say that you guys are also a married couple. You've been together a while, and you just seem so incredibly in love. <laughs> Thank you. I think it's the good eating together that, that tends to, uh, uh, I think, all the wonderful meals, um, shared experiences. It's it's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. And Aww. I think it tends to uh, uh, have a nice uh, impact over the last 25 years that we've been married. So, yes, it is almost 25 years. We'll be celebrating our anniversary with any luck uh, in August. Oh, how sweet. Well, you guys share an email. And I've talked with my husband about this, that I think that is one of the most intimate things a couple can do. <laughs> so whenever <laughs> I meet somebody who shares an email, it's like, oh, my gosh, what a wonderful marriage they must have. So, <laughs> well, I do have a separate email as well, and I think we have a few uh, separate accounts, but there is one that we primarily use, which is um, has both of our names on a Dornenberg page. So wow. um, it, it works out pretty well so that people who are trying to reach both of us don't always have to send multiple emails. Well, you know, it's so funny. We make these decisions in life for whatever reason, and we don't know that they're going to affect anybody else. But I'm telling you the honest truth about that whenever – I send you an email or receive an email from you, and I see that you have a shared account. It always makes me think, like Dr. Phil says, that he wakes up every day and asks himself what he can do to make his wife happy. And it always (laughs) reminds me, I need to do something nice for William. We don't share an email, but I can do something else nice for Thanks for that. So in January, CNN featured a story about four James Beard Award-winning professionals who had given up meat. So that included uh, Washington Post food editor Joe Yonan, uh, Atlanta chef Linton Hopkins, and you were the other two. So that puts you in a pretty august group. What led to this dramatic decision for you? Well, I wish it were an even larger group, but I do think that there's movement certainly in that direction, and I think that part of the what drove us is driving other people. There's so many reasons, as you had enumerated before, that people are coming to the point of eating less or no meat, and um, it, it's uh, good for a whole host of reasons. But in our particular case, after being lifelong omnivores, uh, in 2009, I lost my father, uh, and that was on the heels of having lost my stepmother three years before and are having lost Andrew's parents um, as well, all within a decade, all to cancer. And so I think it it was um, being around losing family members and that finally helped us put together the reality that we'd been reading about and maybe trying to ignore in the newspapers and magazines and online that there really was a direct correlation between what you eat and your health. And so um, obviously we're not the sharpest knives in the drawer to come around to that so belatedly, but obviously that's what um, uh, difficult situations do is you start to see the world in a different way. So health was definitely what led to um, our putting together that uh, nutrition uh, equals wellness um, to a large extent. And so we started reading everything we could possibly get our hands on on what constituted a healthful diet. And of course, there, there's lots of disagreement um, based on differing points of view, but where I think the, the smartest uh, experts seem to congregate was the fact that a plant-based diet is best, and that had absolutely no appeal to either one of us. <laughs> so we're back to 
it. It's like, well, are we really going to check this out? Um, and so I said that um, I was going to start a meatless diet, and Andrew being the chef and the uh, uh, primary cook in our household, he said he was willing to go along, which absolutely shocked me. So this was in May of 2012, and we've been eating meatless ever since. So was it difficult? You know, the interesting part was that it wasn't as tough as we thought it would be. We grew up eating meat three times a day. I w- I'm from the Midwest. Andrew's from Northern California. We ate sort of the, the standard American diet, which included, uh, you know, it, every meal included meat. It, that was really just the definition, the un- understood definition of a meal was, was eating meat. And so um, the whole idea of eating vegetarian or eating meatless or a plant-based diet, um, whatever you want to call it, uh, it just, I, I, I was afraid I wouldn't feel full. I was afraid I would feel weak. You know, every um, criticism that people had sprung on eating this way um, really came to mind. And so I thought, well, I'm a food professional. I'm a food writer. I've won, uh, you know, the major awards in my field, and yet uh, this is just another research project. So I've never eaten vegetarian. I've never stopped eating meat. I wonder what that'll be like. So I I frankly wasn't sure that I could last more than a weekend, but Mm -hmm. indeed we went that weekend, which turned into a week, which turned into a month, which has turned into the last three years plus. And um, it was a bit of an evolutionary process at the beginning. I think we were terribly worried about not uh, wanting to um, inconvenience our hosts when we would be invited to dinner parties. So I think we tended to make more allowances in those early months. But eventually, we both felt so amazing. And, you know, I I would get compliments on my skin, compliments on how shiny my hair looked. I just felt better. And we, um, you know, as professional food writers who would eat three times a day professionally in some cases, we would, um, we found ourselves dropping that extra 20 pounds that we've been carrying around completely effortlessly because we weren't dieting per se in terms of eating any less. We were just eating differently when we cut meat out of the diet and we came to understand that we, when you eliminate the most calorically dense foods that had previously taken up such a big part of your diet that, and, and switched to more nutritionally dense foods like fruits and vegetables, you could even eat more in terms of quantity, but the caloric intake is less and then the, the pounds just sort of fell off. So that was a nice yeah, that, added bonus that was completely unexpected. Yeah, that's one of the great little secrets that you finally get to be full without feeling guilty. So Andrew, as, as the chef and also the food photographer and, and your images in the vegetarian flavor Bible are, are just exquisite, what was your experience in making this switch? Uh, as Karen, I agree with Karen, it was an evolution, and I would think it's very funny. I went out to lunch the other day with an old, old friend, and I said, oh, yes, we've been eating vegetarian now for the last three years. And she looked at me, she goes, well, wh- what do you eat? Like, like you know, like, she, she kind of went pale, and I'm like, well, there's this crazy dish called pizza. And you know, it's like, I do it with a whole wheat crust, and I'll go to the green market, and I'll buy whatever is looking great. I'll buy some asparagus, and, you know, I have a great mushroom person. And, you know, maybe I'll throw some spinach and some chives on it. And then I, then I saw this other crazy dish in the market. That it's, it's called pasta and, you know, ramen. And, you know, have you ever had a Mediterranean plate, <laughs> you know, with hummus and baba ganesh and some, you know, pita? And it, the light sort of went off for her when, she, when I just started talking like that. It's like, you know, I basically just learned that there's a lot of dishes out there that, you know, really weren't enhanced by meat anymore. And just, you know, especially 
when you're like if you live in New York and you can go to the Union Square Green Market where you know it's just heaven every day. Uh, even in the winter months, there's still beautiful sweet potatoes and radishes and things that you can still take off uh, home. So um, it was an evolution, but I also found dishes that were classic meat dishes in my repertoire. Um, I would do a Spanish dish that we'd had in Spain at a winery, so idyllic location, drinking great wine, and it was a pork rib dish that they'd marinated in paprika, parsley, garlic, onions, and you would do it overnight, and then you, you know, add a little more smoked paprika and braise it with uh, new potatoes. You crack open with like a knife, so they're all sort of, you know, crinkly cut. And I thought, well, why can't I just do that with a portobello mushroom instead? And voila, one of my very favorite dishes in my repertoire was now a vegetarian dish. And I, you know, looked at another Italian dish I used to do with chicken breast, which was marinated in balsamic and honey and fresh rosemary, and then added with some peppers and maybe sort of some plant on the side. And again, I just swapped in the uh, portobellos. And next thing I know, I have this very great Italian dish. It's a 40-minute dish, uh, no work at all. And so I sort of learned the tricks, and then I also realized, boy, this food is really is tasting better, and it's sort of made me laser focus on a lot more herbs and spices than I used to have in the past. But I think my cooking got a lot lighter and a lot more fun. I got to you know come up with new dishes again. Mm. Well, I, I know. Think we... uh, I was just going to say I think it was interesting to watch the evolution of his cooking because I think in those early days that that we were both just talking about now, mm-hmm. it was really a matter of what can you substitute for meat because we're so right. used to reaching for the first option that has meat. So if I'm going to have a burrito, of course it's going to have you know some kind of meat in it, and because I just didn't that was the way I saw the world. And the minute that you realize that you're going to stop eating meat, you look at the menu in a whole different way and you say, oh, wow, there's bean, there's bean burritos? Okay, I guess mm-hmm. I'll order that instead. Mm-hmm. Or if I'm going to make this dish that you know, is, uh, traditionally calls for a type of meat, maybe I can substitute something else. How about portobello mushrooms? So that was really where it started. And of course, it continued with the other ingredients as we started to cut other things from our diet, such as eggs or dairy, um, honey, and really find other solutions to them. So that was part of, I think, both a, a health-oriented, a creativity-oriented exploration, but um, indeed what it turned out to be was really a flavor-oriented exploration because we learned so much more about flavor than we ever could have expected. And I do think that that's really what's significant about this new evolving um, uh, interest in the plant-based world is that there is a flavor component to it, that there are people coming into this realm because it can be so much more delicious. I find that I prefer some of these classic dishes that I was so afraid I was going to miss when I gave up eating meat. Um, I prefer the, the vegetarian or, or mostly mm-hmm. the vegan, which is what we're mostly eating at home these days. When Andrew's cooking at home, it's vegan. When we go out, when we travel, we sometimes still eat vegetarian, although, we're, again, we're much more careful about our choices um, because of all we've learned about the way that um, a lot of meat, 98 to 99% of all meat, dairy, and eggs are um, created, how they come to be uh, in this country and um, and produced. So we have had quite an education that's really affected um, all aspects of both what we cook and what we eat. Yeah, and I would just add to that, that Karen mentioned it is all about the flavor and not giving up things. And now one of the things I'd like to do is I'll make just a big pot of lentils, you know, brown lentils, very neutral, just a salt, pepper, and a bay leaf. And then I'll use part of them and make a soup, you know, in a French style. Uh, I'll use another aspect of them and season them like um, taco filling. And I'll literally make tacos, lentil tacos, with less tomato and avocado. 
and then with the last batch I might use for a salad and add some oregano and lemon. So here I am in France, I'm in Mexico, and mm-hmm. I'm in Greece, all with just one pot of lentils, and you know, three very different dishes. So eating this way is a blast. Wow. Do you need a live-in helper of some sort? <laughs> Being back with Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg, authors of The Vegetarian Flavor Bible, we're going to go to break. We'll be back. Hello, listeners. Did you know we've gone mobile? That's right. Your favorite Unity online radio programs are available on your mobile device. Now you can take us with you wherever you go. Using apps from Live 365 or Stitcher, you can listen to Unity Online Radio live or on demand. To learn more, visit www.unity.fm and click on Mobile Listening. It's Kitchen Table Karma. Make kind food choices. Watch more good come into your own experience. Feed your body with bright, fresh, colorful foods from nature and develop the glow of radiant health. Learn how to easily reap these benefits in your life with Victoria Moran's latest book, The Good Karma Diet. Eat gently, feel amazing, age in slow motion. Including stories from real people whose dietary change graced their lives in remarkable ways. Plus, 40 delectable superfood recipes from culinary alchemist Doris Finn. Available wherever books are sold, as a print edition, an ebook, or a deluxe Kindle or Nook book with 30 minutes of audiovisual extras. The Good Karma Diet. Share the love and love your life. Thank you for tuning in for Main Street Vegan. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Main Street Vegan Show. I am speaking with Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg, authors of the Vegetarian Flavor Bible, Magnificent Tome. I just want to mention something. The word pizza came up in the last segment. But you don't put cheese on your pizza. I remember when you were sharing your your pizza with us and William had said, do you use Daya cheese? And you said, well, no, (laughs) we don't use cheese. So it's not required, is it? No, not at all. And I think, again, if you're using really fresh vegetables, cheese might even get in the way and just make it a little heavier when you really don't want it heavier this time of year. But I, I find letting the vegetables do the talking and just a thin layer of tomato sauce uh, does everything you need to have a great slice of pizza. Oh, sounds wonderful. Now, let's get into this incredible book. This is a 550-page book full of Andrew's wonderful photographs. It's about food, but it doesn't contain a single recipe. So describe to us what this book is and what the process of research and writing was like. Sure. Well, the original Flavor Bible, which came out in 2008, um, served as the model for the Vegetarian Flavor Bible, which is an A to Z guide to hundreds of ingredients, anything under the sun you'd ever want to cook that's plant-based. And the 
herbs, spices, and other seasonings that will best enhance the flavor of all of those ingredients. So literally, you can look up everything from apples to zucchini blossoms. You can look up all kinds of vegetables, fruits, uh, legumes, whole grains, mushrooms, nuts, seeds, and so much more. And it'll give you ideas for how to cook with those ingredients. So there's not a single recipe in any of the 550 pages, but in some ways it's an infinite number of recipes because it really gives you the guidelines you need to make most dishes. Um, you know, if you're baking, it's helpful to have a recipe because we're talking about chemistry here and the proportions can be very important. So if you want a cake to rise or if you want um, it to turn out in a certain way. Whereas most of the time, if you're making pizza, you know how to pat out a dough, you know how to um, spread some sauce on it and maybe toss some sliced mushrooms on top of that. Um, if you're making a pasta, you know how to boil water and get it to just the right doneness, whether that's a al dente toothiness or a little softer than that, and then to toss it in a roasted vegetable sauce or a roasted tomato sauce and, and some other add-ins. So, so some of the basics, you know, we all know. We can wrap a burrito at this point. <laughs> We've become very um, accustomed to that. But what we're looking for really is how do we make today's uh, pizza a little different than the one we had last week or today's burrito different from the one we had yesterday. And this is where the vegetarian flavor Bible can come in handy because no matter what you have on hand, if you get a CSA box or you support your local green market, they might have something new in the market this week that wasn't around since last season. So you might have to get some ideas. What do I do with these morel mushrooms now that it's spring? Or what do I do with asparagus um, that's different from what I did with asparagus last spring? And so you might be used to turning it into a soup. Um, you know how to take a veg stock and um, cook the asparagus and um, finish it off with a little seasoning, but you might want to do something a little bit different. So you might be looking for what vegetables or other plant-based ingredients really complement asparagus really well or with um, unusual, uh, less usual ingredients like rhubarb. Okay, everybody knows strawberry and rhubarb go together, but what else am I going to do with the rhubarb? What are some other techniques I can apply to it? And what are some other fruits that go well with rhubarb besides strawberries? And so this is a book that will give you those ideas so you can really start the creative process. And so it's useful, especially, I think, for home cooks who really know the way around a kitchen and also for professional chefs. And it's one of the most used books in professional professional kitchens, both back in the kitchen by the chef who's making the sweet and savory dishes, but also um, you'll find copies often behind the bars um, of some of the most creative mixologists who are looking for ways, and of course you can find a lot of great vegan cocktails too, um, a combination of you know that strawberry and rhubarb with some vodka that I'd mentioned. If, if a mixologist wants to do something else, they're working with the same ingredients that the chefs are working with and have the same challenges, what other ingredients go well with it? So you you can skim the flavor Bible and the vegetarian flavor Bible and see that uh, in terms of berries, uh, rhubarb also goes beautifully with blueberries. It goes well with blackberries. Um, Fruit-wise, it's also wonderful with apples. Um, in fact, it also goes with a lot of the same things that go well with apples like cinnamon and ginger and honey. Um, uh, or um, maple syrup you could substitute, obviously, uh, in the vegan realm. Um, and so once you start skimming those lists of ingredients, you can find things that fit what your particular diet is and what your particular palate enjoys and just take it from there. Well, it's fascinating to me, and you have such an appreciation 
for food. Now, I know that, Karen, you are the former Washington Post wine columnist. And when I read some of your descriptions in the Vegetarian Flavor Bible, it sounds almost as if you're describing a wine. So to open to something just very, very basic, oatmeal and oats, where most people would just say, yeah, it's this bland thing, you put stuff on it. Well, you don't say that. You say slightly sweet with notes of nuts and a chewy and or creamy texture when cooked. And then when you're talking about flavor affinities, you have things here such as oats with apples, brown sugar, cinnamon, and raisins, or oats with bananas, cinnamon, and maple syrup, or oats with pecans, sweet potatoes, and vanilla. And to just read these kinds of descriptions that are all very simple, nobody has to go to culinary school to know how to put these things together, it changes a winter breakfast, so you practically have a different breakfast every morning. Exactly. And when you think about it, I mean, there are oatmeal cookbooks out there, and they, the, the trees that they kill, printing out these full recipes and how to make oatmeal, and then how to sprinkle these things on top, we just eliminate the middleman. You know how to make oatmeal. You know how you like it. You might, you know, I used to make mine with water, and then I read a tip um, somewhere that you could substitute um, all or part almond milk when you make it, and you can make it even richer and creamier, and I love to do that. Um, but then the, the real secret is, what am I going to sprinkle on top? And so a lot of times it's based on the seasonal berries we're able to find at the Union Square Green Market here in New York City, and other times, you know, we're looking for just to shake it up a little bit. That last uh, example that you gave uh, where you can have oatmeal um, plus pecans plus sweet potatoes plus vanilla, I mean, who would have thought of putting sweet potatoes with oatmeal? You and would. yet it's a wonderful combination, and it really takes things in almost a little different direction, uh, more oh. of a lunch or dinner kind of oatmeal <laughs> direction, if you will. So it's, it's a lot of fun to read what we call those flavor affinities, groups of three or more ingredients that all pair really well together. These are, uh, we used to call them flavor clicks in our book, Culinary Artistry. But they're groups of ingredients because they all go so well together that as long as you have uh, is one ingredient is compatible with the next and compatible on the next in any dish, you know, the sum of the parts tends to be greater than each is on its own. Mm. Well, you're reminding me when my daughter Adair was a wee tiny thing, we visited my mom, and one morning Adair looked up at her grandmother and said, Grandma, you make oatmeal so well, you should have a restaurant. And it seems so funny at (laughs) the time because oatmeal seems so ordinary. But now when I read that section of the Vegetarian Flavor Bible, it's like, yeah, you could have an oatmeal restaurant. Who knew? Sure, so, it's, it's exactly. Like, just like there's uh, the macaroni and cheese restaurants that have opened up in New York City where you can get it with different, of course, it'd be nice to see a vegan version of it, um, which I don't, I'm not sure. Actually, I do think that they do have vegan versions there that you can get it made with like a um, nutritional yeast and nut milk um, combination. I don't know what you use in yours, but I know you're a big fan of mac and cheese too, so I'll have to get that from you. <laughs> but yeah, I use a- what else are you going to serve with that? You know, you might, I, I love um, greens, like spinach mm-hmm. melted into my mac and cheese um, or uh, with a nice side salad in the summertime just to give it a little bit of freshness and crispness off to the side. Mm. Yeah, I use a recipe from one of those two original vegan cookbooks that I've had forever. It's called 10 Talents. And I actually... Oh, yeah, I remember uh, that. That's mentioned yeah. in chapter one of the book. 
So I, I borrowed that uh, and, and put it in Main Street Vegan. It's a very simple uh, cashew and, and nutritional yeast. But, oh, my goodness, the vegan cheeses are getting so sophisticated and wonderful. So there's no more, oh, I couldn't give up cheese excuse. So, exactly. And, and a lot of times we'll say cheese, assuming that people know we're saying it with a Z, um, because uh-huh. – you know, we go to some place like Polly G's out in uh, Brooklyn, where it's it's a mainstream pizzeria. It's one of the most acclaimed pizzerias in America. But we go for the in ricotta de vegan pie, which is made with a cashew cheese ricotta. And um, I can't, I, he won't give the recipe of what goes no. into the vegan sausage, but it's truly amazing. I think it could even win a carnivore over. Oh, I think so many of these foods have that capacity these days. So, Andrew, again, coming from the chef perspective, and I know you've worked as a professional chef with some of the most distinguished names in the business. So what are some of the changes that you've learned to make to to achieve this flavor that you guys are so known for without the meat, the eggs, the dairy? Sure. I think one of the things that uh, you also hear people say, I couldn't live without cheese and I couldn't live without bacon which we all know you can live without both those things very easily and have a great diet. Um, but I think one of the things that changed in my spice cabinet was the addition of smoked paprika, which I mentioned earlier. Um, and that basically, if you're, you know, we've talked about people who crave bacon, well, really they're craving something smoky. And so uh, I, growing up, my favorite dish was actually not the Thanksgiving turkey or you know, the traditional ones that people would associate would be my mother's split pea soup that she made right after Easter because she had that ham bone. She'd make this beautiful, wonderful split pea soup. And so now instead of using ham or ham bone, I just throw with that uh, smoked paprika in, and there you go. And the, another good tip is if you want some creaminess, maybe um, cook a celery root and puree it and then use that instead of cream or milk to add a little bit of richness to a dish. So there's a lot of easy things to do out there that are probably already in your spice cabinet now. I love that. I had a spice experience this morning. I, I walked into a little culinary shop in the Union Square area called Whisk because I wanted to get in the mood to talk with you. And at <laughs> first, I was very distracted by all of the sort of meat gadgets. And I thought, you know, if one had genuinely evolved to be a carnivore, you know, you're a, a wolf or a hyena or whatever, you don't need all these gadgets. <laughs> to be able to eat meat, but there were all these sort of meaty things. And just as I was feeling like, oh, my gosh, it's going to be so long before the world wakes up, I found the sweetest little thing. It was called a foodie survival guide, and it's a pack of spices, organic spices in little tiny containers, all stuck together like a little tube so that you can travel anywhere around the earth and have your beautiful spices come along. So that was fun. I, love it. I think some people take flavor very, very seriously, which is a good thing for people who write books called the Flavor Bibles. Um, but yes, I think that that um, even I think people wonder have they have asked us if we tend to carry our own spices with us, which we tend not to do, um, just because we don't want to be those people. And a lot of times <laughs> we're actually, um, you know, 
researching flavor. And it's not about making the food taste the way we want it to taste, but to really understand why people do what they do to make the food taste the way they want it to taste. And sometimes we learn something more from, uh, you know, seeing how a particular chef is thinking about food and flavor. We're, in fact, we're going tonight to Brad Farmery's restaurant, Public, um, downtown Manhattan, and he is cooking a vegan tasting menu all month long. I, I hope he'll Ooh. continue it beyond. But um, he did a wonderful vegan, uh, rather a vegetarian tasting menu last June, um, for the month of June. And we really, really enjoyed that. Um, and this year he decided to push himself one step further um, and, and do a vegan tasting menu. And we've seen pictures that he's posted on Publix's uh, Facebook page, and they look absolutely wonderful. But, it, you know, I think that great chefs like Brad, who have been working in an omnivorous tradition professionally for many years, yet um, evolving toward eating vegetarian at home with his family, um, now he's really curious to try to bring some of that sensibility that he's come to enjoy so much on a personal level, bring that into the professional sphere through offering a vegan tasting menu. And I, and I think that that's happening to more and more chefs all across the country, as you're seeing chefs like Todd Gray at Equinox Restaurant in Washington, D.C., doing the same. His wife is a vegetarian, and I think he was very influenced by her offering a vegan tasting menu. That's exciting. I know that in the June issue of Cooking Light magazine, you had said, once we hit 54% of Americans now looking to reduce or completely eliminate meat from their diet, that's not fringe anymore. That's mainstream, and chefs are changing in response to the customers. So there you go. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We've, we're seeing that all across the country as well. Chefs like Curtis Duffy of Grace Restaurant in Chicago said that fully 100% of his customers are coming in with dietary restrictions of one kind or another, uh, including vegetarians and vegans. And so you're seeing more restaurants like Mario Batali's Del Posto is also offering a vegan tasting menu. Um, other chefs like John Fraser of Narcisa in Manhattan are creating dishes based on old classics. So instead of serving beef Wellington, he's serving a carrots Wellington. That's a completely Ooh. vegan dish. Oh, wow. That's, that's very exciting stuff. So just in our three minutes that we have left, what does the future of food hold? <laughs> well, you know, it's. Uh, I, I think we're very optimistic. I think Andrew and I are the last two people that you would expe- ever expect to be eating vegan at home, and and most of the time when we're uh, elsewhere, um, based on having been omnivores for literally a, a half century each. So uh, I think things are changing. I think they're changing rather quickly because we're seeing um, people learning about a lot of things that we didn't know before. Before the internet, we didn't have access to seeing um, what sort. Paul McCartney said that, you know, if, if slaughterhouses had glass walls, we would all be vegetarians. Well, now with the advent of YouTube, we are seeing what goes on uh, it, where 98% of our meat, eggs, and dairy come from, and so we're making different choices as a result, and also we're learning the different health uh, impacts and, and making different choices that way. But, you know, what, one of the things I love, Victoria, is that in your new book, which is wonderful, The Good Karma Diet, you say um, if it seems too hard, as it does to some Americans, go part way just to get started, whether it's meatless Mondays or eating vegan before six. Um, it's important and powerful whatever steps you do make. Just keep moving forward. And I find that incredibly inspiring and, and your work incredibly inspiring. And I thank you for that. Well, that is fully mutual. I am so happy that both of you are doing all the wonderful things that you're doing. The book is The Vegetarian Flavor Bible. It's magical. Truly, 
you can find Karen and Andrew at KarenAndAndrew.com. You can find them on Twitter at Karen and Andrew and on Facebook, Karen and Andrew. That's easy. Thank you so much. God bless you and eat your very flavorful veggies. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Like life, grief is a journey, not a destination. Whether it is loss of life, relationship, security, or simply the process of change, have you given yourself permission to begin your journey of grief? Have you yielded to the gift of grace? Join Reverend Chaz Wesley every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central on a virtual navigation from grief to grace and explore new horizons of empowerment, significance, and support only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'll light a candle in your name. Inspiration only takes a moment. Your friends at Unity invite you to reflect on these words from Reverend Jim Rosemurgy. Pause and take a deep breath. When you are ready, affirm silently to yourself. Sweet, sweet spirit, I desire a closer walk with you. Show me the way. I am listening. Take time now in the silence to get in touch with the spiritual guidance within you. Have faith that your next step, your unfolding, your spiritual growth is coming to you in divine order through your spiritual instinct or your spiritual knowingness. This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity. Pop culture is defined by the Oxford Dictionary as modern popular culture transmitted via mass media and aimed particularly at younger people. But can it be meaningful, spiritual even? The hosts of Pop Conscious think it can be and that it can be fun to explore too. Malena Don and Stacy Macris Ross will be your amateur cultural anthropologists examining pop culture and spirituality every Monday at 2 p.m. Central on Pop Conscious on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Pop 
culture is defined by the Oxford Dictionary as modern popular culture transmitted via mass media and aimed particularly at younger people. But can it be meaningful, spiritual even? The hosts of Pop Conscious think it can be and that it can be fun to explore too. Malena Don and Stacy Macris Ross will be your amateur cultural anthropologists examining pop culture and spirituality every Monday at 2 p.m. Central on Pop Conscious on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to live in joy? Is there an area of your life where you could use a miracle? Have you been praying for help and guidance? Come join Lisa and Bill and their guests for an hour filled with practical tips on experiencing miracles, greater abundance, focused, deliberate living, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Experience more joy in life. Listen to Living in Joy, Reflections on A Course in Miracles, with Lisa Natoli and Bill Free every Friday at 2 p.m. Central here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm. 